naturally, these words strike us as severe coming from Jesus. He says he's come not to bring peace, but fire upon the earth. And how he wishes the land were already scorched. And the fire he has come to bring is the fire of division. From now on, he says, five members and one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. That is, family bonds, which are among the strongest in nature, will melt like wax before the fire of division. And this division the Lord speaks of is nothing new. Looking back over chapter 12, we find it everywhere present. Jesus has been warning of a day when the whole mass of humanity will be sifted. The sincere will be separated from the hypocrites, the confessors from the deniers, the generous from the greedy, the prepared from the unprepared. The only difference now is that the future judgment has come near. From now on, Jesus warns. That is, humanity in general, and Israel in specific, is already being weighed in the balance. And the signs of this coming division are already present. As Jesus journeys toward Jerusalem, as he makes his way toward the cross, the contrast and the hues of the picture become more stark. Ambiguity and indecision are no longer tenable as Jesus approaches the cross and ultimatum is forced upon the people. The light is shining and one must either step into it or shrink back into darkness. And as a result, the temperature begins to rise. Jesus' words become more severe. The opposition becomes more entrenched. And the necessary conditions for the crucifixion begin to take shape. But again, this is something we should have anticipated. Early on in the gospel narrative, as Luke tells it, amidst the words of peace, of salvation, and goodwill, an ominous shadow is cast. Simeon, when Jesus is presented in the temple, says, Behold, this child is appointed... For the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And alongside him, John the Baptist bellows, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Before Jesus had even begun his ministry, before he was even known to the nation of Israel, it was foretold that he would be the cause of a great division in the nation. In fact, Jesus himself says, The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. He's referring to himself. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So this division has been long approaching. It's been coming, but that is not all the passage has to say 
about this coming fire. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth in how I wish it were already kindled, implying that it has yet to be kindled. He goes on, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. That is, at Jesus' baptism, a metaphor for his death and resurrection, the fires of division will commence after the crucifixion, after Jesus' baptism, then the fire will begin. Now, given the specific time-dated commencement, it's only right to read our Lord's words here as a reference, a veiled reference to the church. Fathers will be divided against sons and daughters divided against mothers when God begins to call out a new people from among the old. Remember, Jesus' death and resurrection renders the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai, his death renders the old covenant obsolete, and it inaugurates the new covenant, the Lord's covenant with the church. Thus, from the people under the law, Israel, God is forming a new people under the Spirit, the church. And as the church is called out from among Israel, families, communities, and the nation itself are torn in two. And following close behind these fires of division is the flood of persecution. Earlier in chapter 12, Jesus had warned his disciples that they were going to be drugged before authorities and rulers on account of him. That they would have to testify for Jesus. That they would be persecuted. And this is how it will happen. When the church comes into being, this division will commence. Remember the Apostle Paul's allegory in Galatians chapter 4. It's a bit of an involved um, allegory that he draws out there, but he says that Hagar represents the old covenant established on Mount Sinai, and that Sarah represents the new covenant established on Calvary. Thus, their children, Hagar, or Ishmael, Hagar's son, represents Israel under the law, and Isaac, Sarah's son, represents the church under the Spirit. And from this, he proceeds to say, But at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that's Isaac. He says, So it is now also. So as it was then, so it is now. In other words, as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so now Israel is persecuting the church. As Luke narrates the story in the Gospel of, or excuse me, in the Acts of the Apostles, that's exactly what we find. The people under the law, under the old covenant, persecute, harass, and ultimately kill the people under the Spirit, the people under the new covenant. Now, these fires of division still burn to this day because God is still forming a people under the Spirit. 
as the church moves forward, as the church continues to add to its number, households, communities, and even nations will be rife with division. That's the case with even some of us. You became Christian, you were numbered with the church, and it brought division within your household. Father divided against son, daughter divided against mother, so on and so forth. As the church continues, division will follow it. And the reason that the church incites division is because she carries forward the purpose of God in the world. The Apostle Paul tells us that our mission, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, is to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for his, all, all nations for his name's sake. Our mission is to bring about the obedience of all nations for his name's sake. But the nations, we are well aware, will not readily submit to the obedience of faith because it would mean the end of their way of life. We see this demonstrated so clearly in Acts chapter 17. The church in Thessalonica was persecuted and terrorized because, the passage says, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Other translations say these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Therefore, if the decrees of Jesus are to be established and obeyed, then the decrees of Caesar must fade into oblivion. And indeed they did. Within a century, within half a century rather, the entire empire was transformed. And as Christians, we often forget how revolutionary the gospel is. How utterly wild this claim that we're making that Jesus is Lord, truly is. Certain countries, North Korea, Afghanistan, China, they recognize sometimes what we miss, sometimes what's become normal to us, that the purpose of God is a threat to the established order, that the kingdom of God upsets and undermines the kingdoms of this world. The scriptures are banned, The church is persecuted. Believers have to go underground and form hidden uh, secret churches. Because if King Jesus has his way, their entire way of life would come to an end. What they hold dear, what they believe is right, their ethics, their code of conduct, their traditions, so on and so forth, would come to nothing. Where the gospel goes, these things are undermined. And the same goes for the states too. We often miss how if the gospel were to have its way here in the United States, so many things that we hold dear would be jeopardized. So therefore, as the church bears the unique responsibility to carry the purpose of God to the world, we ought to expect division and opposition. As you tactfully, wisely seek to represent Christ in your workplace, as you seek to do that among your family members, as the church as a whole seeks to do that among our nation and in the world, division and opposition will come. 
fire will surround us everywhere because, again, the nations will not quickly submit to the obedience of faith. Thus, by way of application, as we think about this in our own life, we ought to take the apostle's words to Timothy to heart. He says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffer hardship with me. Because as soldiers of King Jesus, we ought to be prepared to suffer hardship. Estrangement from family, loss of friends, even state-sponsored marginalization, such things simply come with the territory. In part, I think Christians have been so fearful and outraged at the government's abuse of power, the media's partisanship, and the church's growing powerlessness because we were not expecting these things. We've become a little bit too at home in the world. Remember, as Peter says to the churches he's writing to, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We shouldn't be surprised at the events that are unfolding around us, as if the growing hostility were something strange, something new. Because, again, this is reality in the fallen world. We are a people of the Spirit among people still under the flesh, and we know that the flesh and the Spirit are at opposition with one another. This is the way things are, and this is the way things will be until the Lord returns. So we shouldn't be surprised. Rather than being fearful, rather than making complaints and protests, which ultimately accomplish nothing, the Scripture tells us to rejoice. When these things happen, we are to rejoice because, the Lord says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We betray our witness as Christians when we become fear mongers like the rest of the world, when we're afraid of these things. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We must be prepared and expecting these things because wherever the church will go, division will follow. But again, at this point, it's important that we introduce a counterbalance to these words because some people hearing this talk of division start foaming at the mouth with excitement especially in this climate again to put it another way we might take jesus's words as a sanction on the worst aspects of our nature justifying the jealousy strife and hatred of our own hearts in the name of the gospel We need to remember that the Lord, the one who spoke these words, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, also said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that the one who said, I have come to bring division, 
also said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Jesus did incite division, but he did it without the slightest bit of malice or ill will in his heart. He did it coming from this complete place of love. And again, we need to remember this as we go about in our divided world. Because we can so easily destroy our witness. And I'm afraid that there is a lot of damage being done to the church that it's going to take quite some time to recover from. So if the church is responsible for division, so be it. But it must be in the name of Jesus alone. Thus, given the impending fires of division and judgment, Jesus warns his hearers, verse 54, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, It will be hot today, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present moment. The children of Israel find themselves being accused of hypocrisy because they cannot discern the purpose of God unfolding within their midst. It's been spoken of the prophets, it had been looked forward to all their history, and it's here now. It's happening before them, yet they're blind to it. They're able to read the consistent patterns of nature, and thus they're able to predict the weather, but curiously, they are unable to see God's plan of salvation being fulfilled before their very eyes. Therefore, Jesus doubles down on his warning. He says, verse 57, And why do you not, even on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you were going with your opponent to a to appear before the magistrates, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Switching the metaphor, Jesus informs Israel what awaits them if they do not recognize God's purpose. He compares their situation to that of a debtor who is being taken to court. Jesus urges them to settle with their opponent on the way before they are brought to the judge. Otherwise, the judge will decide against them. The judge will turn them over to the officer, and the officer will throw them into prison. In this case, the prison Jesus speaks of is a debtor's prison. It was common in the ancient world... And a debtor would be locked away in a debtor's prison. And sometimes they would be even beaten until they sold all their possessions to pay back their debt. So to his hearers, the warning would have been unmistakable. Unless they come to their senses and recognize that the purpose of God is passing them by. That the salvation they have long awaited is here now in the person of Jesus, if they don't align with Him, they will pay a severe price. It's much better that they settle with Jesus' call to discipleship now 
that they repent and believe in the gospel, then to be brought before his judgment seat later and have to answer for their lives. Now, what I find so striking about this passage is how evident Jesus thinks this should all be to them. As if God's purpose are as, is as readily apparent and as easy to understand as the seasonal patterns of weather. In Israel, um, Jesus gives these two examples. One is the, if they feel the wind coming up from the south over the desert, over the Negev, they would know it's going to be a hot day. Because the air coming up over the desert warms up and then it blasts through Israel. They understood it. It was easy to see. Same thing to their west was the uh, ocean. And they saw clouds rising to the west. They know, okay, it's probably going to rain today. So on and so forth. They can read these and Jesus expects the purpose of God to be just as easy to understand. Israel should be able to discern the times at hand, but for some reason, they are unable. And we have to ask the question, question why? Why cannot Israel see what should be so easy to see? Now, I think based on the whole counsel of Scripture, our only answer can be sin. Remember St. Paul's words in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, here's the important part, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Also, in First John, or excuse me, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 19, the Apostle says, This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. In other words, the scripture tells us the light of truth is covered over and obscured by the unrighteousness and evil of men. Therefore, though Israel should be able to discern the times, though they should be able to see what's happening and read it just like they can read the weather, they are unable because they are encompassed about by the darkness of their own wickedness. Their spiritual senses have been rendered dull and insensitive by repeated and unrepentant sin. In the epistle of the Hebrews, we find something much the same. The unknown author of that letter warns Jewish Christians who are one step away from denying Christ and returning back to Judaism, saying... Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that you do not be, there, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you, listen, will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, it is is. It is as if the truth, God's purpose, and the right course of action should be easy to discern, but they are not because we are morally compromised people, living in a morally compromised world, constantly in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and thus missing what is happening before our very eyes. 
And this is confirmed in the Gospel of Luke because when Jesus is presented at the temple, only two people recognize him, Simeon and the prophetess Anna. These are the only two who recognize him. And Luke gives him very important and a thorough description of what kind of people they are. Simeon was a righteous man. He was devout. He was just. All these superlatives attributing to him holy character. And the same for Anna. She stayed in the temple night and day, praying and looking for the Lord. It's because these people, as opposed to the mass of the population, were kept pure that they could truly see. They weren't blinded. The truth wasn't obscured by a thousand lies. And again, as we turn to our time, as we try to discern God's purposes for our present day and to live in accordance with them, I could not think of more relevant counsel because the spiritual dullness that threatened Israel surely threatens us today. And so in order to act in accordance with God's will in a time as morally confused and as pluralistic as ours, we must develop a sense of a finely tuned spiritual discernment. In other words, we need wisdom. If we are to discern God's path and follow it amidst everything that else is happening around us, and you think of all the different options, go this way, this is right, this is right, so on and so forth, we need wisdom. Now, such spiritual discernment is not easy to develop. It's not easy to develop because, and this is very important, um, and it's a thread that runs all throughout Scripture, it's not easy to develop because God's wisdom runs counter to worldly wisdom in a fallen world. God's wisdom runs counter to the worldly wisdom of a fallen world. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Because the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So he says the world in its own wisdom, it never came to God. It never recognized God. But, and therefore, uh, Paul tells us, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message. Not the wisdom of the message, but the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. Again, that is, in a world estranged from God, God's wisdom, God's purpose is perceived as foolishness. The world sees it. The world looks at what Jesus says to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies, to he goes himself to be crucified in the world season, and they say that's weakness. That's foolishness. That's not power. And yet, that is how God's purpose works in the world. His purpose grates against the conventions and established norms of our time. Christ crucified, the passage goes on to say, is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks, but to those who are being saved, it is the power and wisdom of God. The Jews look at the cross and they think that's utter ridiculousness. How could the transcendent God come to be man and yet die on a cross for our sins and so on and so forth? It's a stumbling block to them. The Greeks look at it and it's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, to those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, 
They see the man dying on the cross in weakness, and they see, no, 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 that's the power of God. The world sees foolishness, but we see wisdom. And that is why, St. Paul says, the purpose of God is either missed, people just don't see it, or it's outright opposed. He says a little bit later on in chapter 2, verse 6, We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So he says there is a wisdom which believers have, a wisdom that we speak to one another, but it is not the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age. He says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, that is, the rulers and authorities of this world are opposed to the purpose of God because they cannot see, discern, or comprehend the nonsensical and contradictory wisdom of God. The purpose of God is opposed because they can't see God's purposes. Paul says that's why the authorities crucified the Lord of glory. If they had seen the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have, but they missed it. Again, as the scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Thus, church, if we operate according to worldly wisdom, we will never be able to discern God's purpose for our day. And I mean that as a church, as a whole, as a family unit for yourselves, as an individual believer, until we can learn this hidden, upside-down, unconventional wisdom of God, the wisdom of Christ crucified, we're not going to really be able to align ourselves with God's purpose. And you see this so much, right? So much of modern-day Christianity is just what the world has. It just packaged under a different form. Christianity is all about, you know, living your best life. It's all about reaching this self-potential, all about the world's message in a Christian version. That's what passes as popular Christianity. So, again, God's purpose might be as plain as day, but like Israel, we can still miss it. In our world inundated with mass media and instant information, that's a very real threat. Because most Christians' view of the world, I would venture to to say, is more shaped by what they hear on the news channels, what they hear from their favorite political pundit, whatever it may be, that's how they view the world. That's the story they see themselves living in, the story that's told every night on the news, or the story that you're hearing from whoever it may be. And if we're operating by that story and not the one that's told by Jesus and the apostles, we're going to miss God's will. Again, if that is the fundamental grid through which we approach the world, how we imagine our place in it, we can only misunderstand and distort God's world. Because, again, we're going to see ourselves living in a different story than the one God is telling. 
We're going to see ourselves caught up in the political story that's being told, whether on the left or the right. We're going to be ourselves caught up in the story that our modernity tells, the story that you're finding in wherever rather than the story of God. Therefore, in order to align ourselves with the purpose of God, rather than all the alternatives, here's what we need to do. We must reimagine the world and our place in it according to God's wisdom, or as the world sees it, the foolishness of God. Again, as Paul said, this is a wisdom, but for those who are mature. Again, because it's not natural. You have to unlearn the wisdom of the world, and then learn the wisdom of God, and then grow into it. And it comes about in large part, again, by seeing the world through the lens of the cross. We learn God's wisdom by seeing the world through the lens of the cross, through Christ crucified. That is, that God has chosen the weak, the foolish, and the base things of this world to confound the powerful, the wise, and the eminent things of the world. God acts in a contradictory way. It was Martin Luther who coined the phrase, and it's one of my favorites, God works under his opposite. Martin Luther was obsessed with the cross, one, because he grew up in medieval Catholicism, which it was essentially devoid of, and he rediscovers justification of faith, and he, this whole new theology is birthed out of Martin Luther's experience. And one of the things he always comes back to is that God works under his opposite. He works not in glory, but in shame in this world. Not in in power, but in weakness. Not in wisdom, but in foolishness. That's how God works. And so that phrase, God works under his opposite, is worth remembering. Because, again, if you're wanting to align yourself with God's purpose, you need to look for it where you would least expect him. You'd look for him in his opposite. Again, for God was not found on a throne in this world, but on a cross. And to this day, God's purpose in the world still operates according to the logic of Golgotha. That is the way God works. So, having considered this passage, it's appropriate that we conclude with hope. Because Jesus has come to bring peace. And though the world will not accept his peace, that does not invalidate it. We must be prepared to withstand the fire of division, but we know that that fire is not lasting. Rather, what is lasting and permanent in this world is peace. Because God founded the world in peace. He looked on his creation and he said, Behold, it is very good. And from peace, the world descended into war. But God sent his son and he reconciled it back to himself. As the Holy Scripture says, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That's Jesus. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. So our hope, our hope is the day when all things, whether in heaven or on earth, are reconciled once again to God and then to one another, where peace reigns, 
where reconciliation has been enacted. When, as the prophet Isaiah says, they will hammer their swords, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. But till that day, church, we are, in a bit of an oxymoron, soldiers of peace, following the marching orders of our king. We do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but we give a blessing instead. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. And above all, Ephesians chapter 6, we lace up our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And if there be division, let there be division. But we must be peacemakers, for we are the children of God. And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, it's so fitting that we remind ourselves of what it means. Because, brothers and sisters, we were enemies of God. But now, through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Jesus has taken away the hostility of our sin, and He's restored us to peace with God. Such that, though we were enemies, now we're adopted into the family. And therefore, we're invited to the Lord's table. We're invited to share with Him. And it signifies, uh, the Lord's Supper does, it signifies our fellowship with Jesus. We participate in His body and blood, but even more than that, it enacts our fellowship with Him. Through the Supper, we share truly in the Lord. The peace that Jesus died to establish is realized in the Lord's Supper. It's a sign of the peace that we have with Him and the peace that we have with one another. Let's pray.